and uh, we are looking today at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to cover the whole thing. Uh, Whether we cover the whole thing or not, we're going to be done with Ephesians chapter 2, and next week we'll move on to chapter 3. That's more likely how it will go. We'll cover a little bit of it and then be done. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 2, let me open with uh, a word of prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for this time that we have to be together, uh, to study it, to learn from it, uh, to learn as your Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, as you give us spiritual eyes to see. Lord, thank you for making us alive in Christ. Thank you for reconciling us to one another, that we may be reconciled to you. Uh, We thank you, O Lord, that you have given us these great and wonderful promises and that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you for uniting us to him, uh, and through him all of uh, the heavenly blessings that you have for your people uh, flow to them and, uh, and are fulfilled. We thank you, Lord, uh, for this truth that we'll see today, and we pray that you would build us up and strengthen us in your word, help us to see it and understand it and rejoice in it. Uh, give us glad hope as we study together today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we actually read the text today, just uh, a brief, brief, brief review of what we saw last week. Chris Campelli led a class on Ephesians chapter 1 last week. In Ephesians chapter 1, essentially, what we see is God's eternal plan and his almighty power. And both of those find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That is one of uh, the repeated phrases, in Christ, in him, in whom... Over and over and over again, it directs our attention to all of God's power and plan fulfilled for his people in Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 1 is a chronicle of heavenly blessings that come to human recipients of salvation through a unilateral grace of God who loves, predestines, chooses, redeems, seals, guarantees, and works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's what we saw last week, setting up Ephesians. Now we are, uh, again jumping pretty quickly through the book, so uh, we didn't spend a lot of time, and and Chris intentionally did not spend a lot of time setting up uh, where Ephesus was and all the background information and and the occasion for the writing of the letter, but it is pretty important. If you want some of those further details, suggest that you find yourself a good study Bible, uh, that you, you find some notes somewhere where you can find all of those things, but just a few things that we need to keep in mind as we think about Ephesus and, uh, and this church to whom Paul is writing, first thing to know is that Ephesus is a church that is very well known to Paul. As you read through the book of Acts, you find that Ephesus is the place where Paul spent the longest portion of ministry among any of the churches. Now, we find that he preached there for about two years, uh, and that's longer than, than Acts records Paul staying in any other single place. Second in line, by the way, is Corinth, uh, where Paul stayed for about 18 months preaching and, and teaching. And so uh, in Ephesus, there's a church that is well-known and well-beloved by the apostle. Uh, it's a church that was planted by him, that was nurtured by him, that was led by elders and deacons trained by Timothy after Paul's imprisonment. Uh, and uh, it's also a church of mixed devotion. So you see in, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> you see in Acts chapter 20 that Paul on his way to Jerusalem uh, stops by one of the port cities in Asia and he calls the elders of Ephesus to him. 
uh, and they come, and he warns them. He, he tells them to continue in the faith, but warns them that from even among their own number will come men who are wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, elders who will try to devour uh, the church, and that they need to watch out for that. Then in Revelation, about 30 years after this letter is written, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And so there's this mixed devotion in Ephesus. There is this desire uh, to continue steadfastly following the Lord. But even several decades after Paul is writing these things and as the ministry is going on, there is uh, what Jesus calls this lack, this loss of the first love. This is also a church full of Gentiles. Uh, that seems pretty obvious to us, uh, but it's a very important part of the letter of Ephesians. In fact, that is one of the major themes and one of the things that, that comes to the foreground in chapter 2, this, this joining of Jews and Gentiles together in one church. And so Paul is writing to this, uh, to this church of Gentiles and uh, reminding them that they have in Christ Jesus the same salvation that the Jews have in Christ Jesus. And in fact, through Christ, they are all united into one. Paul is also writing from his imprisonment. Uh, he, he mentions his imprisonment and his chains a few times in this letter. So that's just a little bit of background. Uh, one of the other things you need to understand about the book, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, it is a very doctrinally heavy book. Uh, this is, if you remember, when Don Ultra first hit the market. And up until that point, all of the dish soaps were kind of watery. And then here comes Dawn Ultra, and it's got all the concentrated cleaning power of a full bottle, except it's this big. Well, now all of them are like that. They're all, uh, you know, thicker and, and more powerful. But Dawn Ultra was this big thing. Ephesians is the Dawn Ultra of Paul's New Testament letters. There's all the doctrine that we might want to find in any of the bigger letters, like Romans or 1 Corinthians, and it's shrunk down. In fact, my uh, maybe humorous to you, maybe not humorous to you, my anecdote about Ephesians is that you may recall, you may know that I attended a very reformed and Presbyterian undergraduate school, uh, Geneva College, and I attended that very reformed and Presbyterian undergraduate school as a very non-reformed Arminian. Uh, and I was doing Christian ministries, and I had to choose for one semester, I had to do a New Testament exegesis course, and my options were Romans or Ephesians. And I thought, oh, if I take the Romans class, I'm just going to hear more predestination, just more Calvinism, we're going to get to chapter 9, and it's going to be all these Calvinists trying to wag their theological finger in my face. I'm going to skip all that, and instead, I'm going to take Ephesians, and in the first class, in the first chapter, God predestines us according to his love before the foundations of the world, uh, and I was caught. Uh, so there's a lot of big stuff and good stuff in Ephesians. Just uh, for, uh, for giggles, I, I took a look um, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. There is an index, if you have the right version of the Confession of Faith, where you can look up all of the occurrences of particular scriptures in the Confession uh, used as a proof text. And in a document containing 33 chapters... Just chapter 2 of Ephesians is cited as a proof text 23 times. It is cited in uh, 13 separate chapters of the Confession, uh, and there is a wide range. It's, it's cited as a proof text, and some of the doctrines that you would expect 
Ephesians chapter 2 to be cited as a proof text for doctrines like uh, God's eternal decree, uh, sin and the fall of man, the doctrine of free will, the doctrine of effectual calling, of justification, saving grace, the communion of the saints, but it also shows up connected to doctrines that you might not expect, uh, like synods and councils uh, and religious worship and the Sabbath day. So when we are handling Ephesians, we are dealing with something that is dense. Uh, there's a lot of theology. There's a lot of doctrine. We could walk through this, uh, this chapter today and simply pick out uh, what are the doctrines that we see and, and how do we see this connected to a larger understanding of what God is doing in the world. And that would be a very helpful study, but we're not going to do that. And in fact, we have not yet read the text. So let's do that now. See, there's a method that as I give all my introductory comments, everybody shows up. And with everybody here, we can now read the text together. So Ephesians chapter 2, and just so you're aware, what are we looking for? What, what will give us a, a big overview of what's happening here? Uh, think about the change that it makes for people to be in Christ. This is typically broken down as uh, the ESV breaks it down into two main sections. Sometimes we think of them as the individual change that it makes uh, to be in Christ and the social change that it makes to be in Christ. That's a pretty helpful way to think about things, but the idea is that being in Christ is an absolute change of circumstance, of, of hope, of future uh, those that are outside of him are dead. Those who are inside are alive. Those who are outside are separate and alienated. Those who are inside of Christ are joined together into one body with access to the Father. So that's what we're going to see uh, in these two sections. Let's read together. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus far God's holy word. Uh, simply put, as, a, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the theme of Ephesians chapter 2 is the fact that union with Christ changes everything. And so Paul uses this striking language to discuss the fact that those who are in Christ uh, have been transferred from death to life, have been moved from being strangers to citizens, uh, and from being hostile to one another to reconciled together in a family being built up into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. There is no other language to use for this description of what changes when we are in Christ than the language of new creation. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 could be thought of as a sort of extended exposition of the thought that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we see here... Uh, in several places in this chapter, the language of creation or what God is creating. And we also see in verse 10 that ties these two halves together, this idea of God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. We are what he has created. We are what he has done. It's a common word. The word in the Greek is poema. It means a product. That which is made, that which is produced, it could be an agricultural product elsewhere in, in, in usage of this word, agricultural or architectural or, or whatever it is. Uh, in the basic sense, this is like Paul saying we're a widget. We're a thing made. But the difference is that we're not just a widget, we're God's widget. Uh, in this grand production line that God has going on, we are his workmanship, the thing that he has created. And that means that his power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, uh, is working to recreate us. There are two implications, as I mentioned, and we will get to, uh, to discussion in just a little bit. Uh, you know, somebody a while ago told me that I teach like I preach, and that there's nothing I can do about that. I'm sorry. Uh, so we'll get past the homily, and then we'll get into some discussion. Um, uh, but the first implication, looking at the, the first section, verses 1 to 10, of God's recreation of us is that, that by the power of God, we have received a salvation that our flesh could never accomplish. Okay, So that's the first change that God has made. He's made us recipients of a salvation that we could never accomplish for ourselves. Verse 1 describes us as the walking dead. He says we are dead, and yet we're walking, we're living, we're moving around. He's talking about a spiritual Deadness. We are spiritually deceased even while our bodies continue to act out the sin that's in our souls through our depraved nature. And because we are spiritually dead, we are unable to do the work of saving ourselves and coming to God for redemption in order to be uh, made participants 
of the grace of God and the salvation that's to be offered in Christ, we first must be made alive. That has to come before we receive salvation. Regeneration precedes faith. God has to do a work in us first to raise us up in order to unite us to Christ. And by God's grace, we, hear, we see here this, um, uh, this dual language, uh, by his mercy and his love. Take a look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is one of these, uh, these uh, things that should make us think about the Old Testament. One of these uh, pairs of words here. God's mercy and his love. This is one of the New Testament equivalents, that pair in the Old Testament, where God says that he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And Paul says, yes, this, this comes from God. It comes from his character and who he is, not from what we've done. But because of this grace and mercy, we've been given new life. And so we have been raised, we've been exalted, and we'll, we'll hopefully talk about that a little bit. We've been exalted with Christ through this gift of faith, and this is all apart from our works. Uh, the language there in the Greek is ergon. It is uh, a cognate of our English word energy, energy, the things that we do, the work that we work. And Paul says, no, 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 not by your energy, but by God's doing. So you become a recipient of this salvation. God takes us from walking in sin that leads to death to walking in good works that come from life and lead to life. So that's the first implication as we summarize those first 10 verses. The second implication of God's recreating of us means that by the power of God, we've received a peace that our humanity could never establish. Could never establish, excuse me. So uh, God's workmanship in us, his recreating, uh, leads to uh, a resurrection. We've been raised up with Christ. It also leads to uh, a reconstruction. We see that language of creation again. Just as God in Christ created living saints to walk in good works, in verse 10, uh, so also he is creating, verse 15. He's creating in Christ one new man in place of the two old ones in order to make peace between them both and present them to the, to the Father through the cross. Uh, this also points back to the workmanship of God. Uh, Paul reminds his Gentile readers there in verse 11 uh, that before they were joined to Christ, they were identified as what is called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which he said is made, in, made by hands in the flesh. So God's workmanship, we already saw, is his poema. That's the Greek word, the widget. We are God's poema. But the word that he uses here for made by hands is Kairopoietas. He is drawing a distinction. There are things that God does, and there are things that human hands do. And he says, no, no, no. At one time, there were human hands that made a distinction and made a separation between man and man. Of course, God gave circumcision to the Jews. It was his gift. Uh, but through pride of man and through the sins of our hearts, all of God's good gifts can become things that they should not be. And so what happens when, when humans are placed in society together? We, uh, we naturally draw distinctions and make divisions. And so we boast in those things that are done by hands, the hand widgets, we might call them, uh, and not in the workmanship that God uh, is doing in his people. And so it takes uh, work of God uh, to, uh, to change this. So he says that through Christ, those who are far off have been brought near, uh, and he becomes the peace not just offers peace or brokers peace, but he himself is the peace that we could never accomplish. And so in order to reconcile those who are outside God's covenant promises, Jesus takes on himself the covenant curses 
And he bears in his body the hostility of God's wrath against sin. And now he gathers citizens into this this new united kingdom through the preaching of the gospel of peace. And when they're brought in, he says they're built up. This wonderful and sort of strange imagery uh, of a building that grows. You've seen a building being built, but he uses language of growing, uh, almost like a body. And later we'll see that same language in chapter 4 as as the body grows, as each part works together and builds itself up in love. Well, so also the, the body is being built up. And notice this covenantal language also. This is one of the reasons that we wanted to jump from a study of, uh, of uh, the covenants in Scripture through O. Palmer Robertson to studying Ephesians, uh, the whole book of Ephesians, but specifically chapter 2, this language of being made partakers of the covenant. And what is the fulfillment of the new covenant? Well, it's that God's spirit would dwell in his people. We would be redeemed, we'd be joined to Christ, that we would have our sins forgiven, and we would become a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Paul says here. Uh, You used to be separated from all the external covenants, but now you've been united through Christ, and through Christ you are recipients uh, of the new covenant by water and the word. So we've got one chapter, two main halves. And again, this is typically broken down as, as expressing a sort of individual salvation, verses 1 to 10. Uh, and then a social dimension of redemption uh, applied to both Jews and Gentiles. And here we'll get into some of uh, the discussion. Um, notice that in, uh, in chapter 2, the major uh, picture, the metaphor that we have uh, is death and life. Death becomes the picture of our sin. This is not the only picture that the New Testament gives us of death and its, uh, I'm sorry, of sin and its effects in our lives. But it's a pretty good picture. What exactly is Paul getting at by using this picture of death to describe our sinful condition? What does it add to what he's teaching us? And how is this different, perhaps, than maybe uh, some of the other pictures that we see in the New Testament? Is Is that a clear enough question? So Paul gives us, he uses the metaphor of death to explain sin. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why does he use that picture? What is he conveying by that, by that metaphor? And how is that different from some of the other New Testament metaphors that we find uh, for sin in the life of, uh, of a person? Ronnie? Yeah, that's a great point, Ronnie. And maybe a good place for us to begin is by thinking about some of these other metaphors in Scripture for sin. One of them is is darkness. In fact, we'll see it later in Ephesians. Paul will use the language of darkness. Uh, He talks about the Gentiles being darkened in their understanding. He talks about, uh, in other places in the New Testament, being taken from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So there's one image that we find in the New Testament uh, of, uh, of sin and its effects that we are shrouded in darkness. Uh, but it's different 
from this picture of death. And Ronnie's pointing out that, that death means not only are we, are we in darkness, but there's no hope of light, right? The dead do not raise themselves, right? If you're in the darkness, maybe you can kindle a fire. In fact, that is uh, exactly the image in Isaiah uh, where he, he critiques people for saying, well, we're, we're walking in darkness, but we'll walk according to the light uh, of our own understanding. He says, no, 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 no. Um, uh, but there's, you know, if you're in darkness, maybe there's something you can do to, to get into the light. And the difference here is when you're dead, you're dead. And dead men do nothing. I saw a hand from, from Dave. Yeah, yeah, and, and sin does cripple us, in a sense, right? I, I don't know that, that I can think of a particular um, reference in the New Testament, but we see that, uh, that it hinders us, that it, that it leads us because of our sinful nature. We are drawn in the direction of sin. That's the sort of language of, of chapter 7 of Romans, where Paul wants to do, but he can't do. He wants to not do, but he does. Uh, and he's, he's crippled by his sinful nature, in a sense, even after uh, he's been joined to Christ, there continues to be this, uh, th this uh, downward uh, crippling uh, movement of our sin nature. And it's different from death uh, because there is no hope. You, you see people who uh, are physically disabled and yet are able to do amazing things. They compensate in one way for, for uh, their disability by, by strengthening other things. You, you've seen, you know, biathletes uh, who, who are uh, physically disabled and, and yet they're able to do these wonderful things. Well, well dead uh, is not something you come back from. It's not something you just compensate for, right? Other pictures of sin in the New Testament and how that contrasts with what we see here. Yep, Landon? Yeah, that is one of the major pictures of sin in the New Testament, is this idea of sin being slavery. Uh, we find that in Romans, we find it in Titus, we find it all over the New Testament, uh, this idea that if we present our bodies as slaves uh, to sin, we, we become uh, slaves of those masters to whom we present our bodies. So, so it's this entrenchment, it is this captivity, as you said it, uh, and there is a master, right? If there is a slave, there is... A master, there's one who makes demands and, and chooses what we will do and leads us in particular directions. And Paul's saying here that the, that the master of sin is the prince of the power of the air. Uh, but then there's this other, uh, this other picture, the sons of disobedience, this idea of an inheritance uh, that we see there. And in fact, he applies it twice in, in two different sets of language. He says, on the one hand, that you are sons of disobedience, but we all, by nature, were children of wrath. 
there's this inheritance language, right? Uh, and, and this is important because he's just spoken in the first chapter of the inheritance that we have as children of God. He says, well, that's not where we began, right? Uh, there, so the, another, another picture even here is, uh, is of an inheritance of sin. We're brought in by nature and we receive the inheritance that we deserve as children of our father, the devil. That's uh, what, what Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John. Good. Anything else we want to see uh, or say about, uh, about this idea of, of sin and how it makes us dead? Scott? <clears throat> okay. And so it, it reminds us again that we need the creative power of God, that we are incapable of recreating ourselves. And that's why it's so important that as you, uh, as you remove the uh, chapter numbers and the subsection headings in your text, you see that Paul actually moves pretty flawlessly from the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of Christ's people. And they're connected thoughts between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, we have been raised to new life through Jesus Christ. Good. Now, Landon has already uh, grabbed in this text one of the influences or, or, uh, or one, of, um, uh, one of the struggles that we have with our sin. He pointed out uh, this idea of, of the devil showing up. Uh, and the devil has, uh, you know, it says that you are, uh, you are following the prince of the power of the air, Paul has three influences in this text uh, that affect our life in sin. Can you identify them? We've got one of them so far. And, uh, and do we take them seriously? Dave. I think you could. Yep. Absolutely. Good, uh, good catch there. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, that, that uh, classic triad of, of the powers of sin. Uh, easy enough to identify that. But my question is, do we take these things seriously enough? Uh, or do we sometimes take some of them too seriously? Uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, in, uh, in some Christian circles, there's a lot of talk about the influence of the devil. In other Christian circles, there's almost no talk about the influence of the devil. Well, that's, that's a fairy tale uh, that people used to believe. There were demons behind every rock. There were uh, spiritual influences and spiritual warfare. There are different Christian churches that you'll walk into, uh, and we will, we will lean in the direction of one of these three and say, oh, this is really the problem. What do you think we lean toward in our Reformed church and how can we regain the biblical balance of the seriousness of all three of these? See Ronnie first and then Dave. Okay.
So Rodney's suggesting we lean away from talking about the influence of the devil and lean in reformed circles where we are steeped in our ideas of total depravity to our own sinful nature. It's not a bad thing. Uh, it's not a, not, a, not a bad emphasis to have. Um, but Paul says that all three are serious. So Dave, what do you think? Where do we lean? How can we regain some of the balance? Okay. Now, it is important, I think, as we, as we look about this, that, uh, or we look at this, that we're still in the section uh, of this chapter where Paul is talking about this is what it was, right? And the New Testament clearly shows us that those who are in Christ are not uh, driven by the influence of Satan, right? He, he still influences, he still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he will devour. But when Jesus told that parable about uh, spoiling the strong man, he's talking about taking people from Satan's grasp. And so there's a real sense in which Paul says, look, you used to be this way, but you're no longer this way. And yet Satan's still there. Um, uh, and and uh, Dave's also talking about wrong think, right think, sort of in-group, out-group. Sure, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are other, uh, I saw Kathy and I saw Mike, and we'll get to you. Uh, there are other traditions of Christianity, ones that we would probably call fundamentalist strains, uh, that have largely said, well, the real problem is worldliness. It's out there, and if the church can just separate itself from the world, we'll be okay. Of course, the church does need to separate from the world uh, to bear the reproach of Christ and go out from them and to not be like them even though we're in them. But again, when we start thinking about these three different influences, we need to find the biblical balance of taking them all seriously and not imagining that, well, if we just deal with spiritual warfare, then everything else will be okay. If we just deal with the problem of worldliness, then everything else will be okay. And Paul says, well, in, in the struggle against sin, there are, there are multiple factors that we need to, to take in. So, Kathy, you were going to add to that.
some of you heard me having a conversation in the hallway last week with one of the children of our church who asked me, if God is so powerful, couldn't he simply snap his fingers and go back in time and crush the head of the serpent before, uh, before he tempted Eve? Uh, and that was one of those moments where the, uh, out of the mouth of babes comes this huge theological issue. <laughs> and, and, you know, very briefly was able to say, well, don't forget God created Satan as well. Uh, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and put Satan there and in his eternal wisdom and glorious purposes allowed the fall and even ordained that first fall so that Christ would be glorified. I saw Mike and then Chris and then Jay. Yeah. I like this idea that you're giving us, Mike, that, that the struggle against sin is always a war on multiple fronts, all right? That it's not easy, it's not as easy as simply saying, well, the devil made me do it. Um, you know, well, there's the influence of the world. I may blame Google's algorithms for why I scroll through my news feed and say, oh, I need that thing. But why am I susceptible to that algorithm, right? It, it's not Google's fault if I want things that I don't have. That's my own covetous heart. Uh, and they're playing together, right? And, and, and the sin comes from a confluence uh, of, uh, of both my internal desire for things that are not right and the external influence of saying, don't you want this thing? Good, good. I saw it. Chris and then Jay.
David. I hope everybody heard what Chris said roundabout in the middle somewhere. Uh, he was talking about it really is Christ who overcomes uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, and then talked about God joining us into him and, and into his victory. We're going to come back to that right after we hear Jay's comment. But we're, we're going to get back to, to that idea. So don't let that idea slip. Jay. <clears throat> pressure, pressure. Better be good. Yeah. I think that is a, a good reminder, uh, and it, it brings to my mind uh, the image of Hosea uh, and the way that he speaks of Israel in the Old Testament, that God gave her, his bride, lots of gifts, and yet they were able to take all those gifts and go and worship and serve a different husband. And so what God is going to do is, is to draw Israel back to himself, not just to his gifts, right? There, there are all these wonderful things Good theology is a gift of the Lord, and it's important for us to grow in a knowledge and understanding of how he's revealed himself. Um, but when it comes to uh, do you understand these doctrinal points, these are like the hem of his garment, right? Jesus is walking through the crowd. There's a woman with an issue of blood. If I can just touch the fringe of his garment, uh, which, by the way, was probably the tassel with the five knots that remind the Jews of God's promises through the Torah, it was a messianic expectation. If I can grab that, then I have access to something. Well, we, we should hold on to that. That is a reminder of, of who God is and what he's done. But far more should we come to him and see that, uh, that one of the high points of this chapter is in the second half when, uh, when he tells us that, uh, that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right? Not just that we have received the mind of Christ, but through the Spirit in Christ, we are brought to God, and we have this relationship. That's an excellent thought. Thank you. Now, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, the Presbyterian can spend most of the time talking about sin, but uh, let's talk about what God has done. He has recreated, he has raised us to new life through Christ Jesus, uh, and, uh, and one of the, the wonderful um, uh, quotes that I found this week from F.F. F. Bruce, uh, the question of what has God done to bring salvation to the sinner. He says, this question, this inquiry dates from the days of Ezekiel. It admits of only one answer. The Spirit of the Lord must breathe on these dry bones. 
It is the act of revivic revivification, and in that, the creator must take the initiative. So we know what God has to do. We're dead in sins, and he has to make us alive in Christ Jesus. In, in Reformed thought, we call this God's effectual calling. There's an outward calling by the gospel. There is an inward calling by the Spirit where the Lord enlivens our wills and enables us to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what has to happen. And so without downplaying that, I want to jump beyond the sort of but God moment to see another aspect of what God is doing. Uh, and it is in verse 6. So but God, rich in mercy, made us alive, verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by raising us up with Jesus and seating us with him in the heavenly places? What is the spiritual implication for our lives now? What difference does it make? And what does he even mean? That we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Tim wants to raise his hand, but, but maybe not. You can think while Ronnie, while Ronnie has her comment. Tim, ready? Okay. <laughs> You're going to go anyway? <laughs> That's how I feel most Sundays. Good thoughts, though, right? Um, uh, it, it is this complete change. And, and one of the things that you said in, in that spaghetti uh, is the ability to fight against these things and the realization that you're no longer under them. Right?
No, 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 that's, that's really good. I, I saw a couple more hands, but, but maybe it would be helpful for us in, in thinking through what does it mean for us to be seated with Christ? What does it mean for Christ to be seated? Let's start there. It's done, okay? So he's no longer standing at his work like the other priests. It's completed action. He's sitting down. Dave? It's a position of authority. He's seated at the right hand of God Almighty, right? There is no one that rules over Jesus. He is not affected by the sin, uh, by the flesh, the world, and the devil. He has complete authority, okay? This is exaltation language. This is what we saw in the first chapter. God raised him up and seated him at the right hand of God Almighty. It's a picture of authority when Jesus is seated. Scott? The footstool. Yeah. Alona? And, and here's why I wanted you to think about what Chris said a little bit ago. That it is Christ who is the conqueror of all these things. But the New Testament tells us that in him, we are more than conquerors. This is the language of exaltation. Uh, that we, seated with Christ, receive his authority. We don't become the kings of the universe, right? We don't have the authority but we become the recipients of the benefits of his authority. Scott mentioned the footstool. Look back at, uh, uh, at verse uh, 22 and 23 of chapter 1. It's talking about Christ seated. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, that is God, put all things under, he, that it, uh, under his, that is Christ. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We had this question last week about, wait a minute, is he seated, is he there, is he, you know, where is he, the footstool, and trying to figure out, and, and some of this is catching metaphorical language, but notice uh, that there is a distinction here. Christ is the head, everything else is under his feet, and we are his body. What does that mean that everything else is under? Our feet as well, right? If you think about it, he's the head, Everything else is down here. We're in the middle. We're with him. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what he means in Romans chapter 8 when he comes through. Nothing can separate us. Height or depth, uh, you know, death or life, angels or demons, all of these things. No, through him we are more than conquerors. And so this is part of the change that being made alive in Christ has in us. As Tim was pointing out, we are able now to fight against the flesh. We are not bound by the influence of the devil. We have been drawn out from the world and are no longer a part of it. We have been given new standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the obvious response to this is, well, it doesn't look like you're seated in heaven. Well, no, it doesn't look like you're seated in heaven, but it didn't look like you were dead in your sins and your trespasses either, did it? And these are things that are spiritually discerned. We're walking around, we're doing things. Your neighbors are nice people with nice families and nice jobs and nice lawns. And if they're outside of Christ, they are dead in their sins and their trespasses and the ways in which they once walked, according to the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath. And we look at other people and say, I don't see it, but I believe it. 
we have to do the same thing with this exaltation language. You're seated with Christ. You have victory over these things. Well, I don't see it, but I believe what God has said about Jesus, and I believe what God has said about us. And so it is this call, this challenge to believe what uh, the Lord is doing. Well, we made it to verse 7. Congratulations, time is up. Uh, I want to challenge you to go back and and read this together in your families, uh, in your homes, in your personal study. Uh, If anybody wants notes, you can can find them. I'd be happy to share them with you. But just remember this idea uh, that everything changes when we are in Christ. Yes, we're dead, but we're made alive. That is, we are brought to new life and we're given victory over the things that should otherwise assault us. Uh, And we're, we're made alive for a reason so that God would declare and show his wonderful kindness among us uh, through the ages, through this age and through the ages that are to come. Uh, We become God's trophy. And the united church, which we didn't get to in the second half of this chapter, uh, the fact that in Christ all human divisions are broken down. Uh, doesn't mean that, that there's no division between Christians and Muslims. I said in Christ human divisions are broken down. Uh, There are still divisions between believers and unbelievers, but once we're drawn into him, he has one church, one body. Uh, He prays in uh, in the upper room that his people would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And so he gives us this promise, he gives us this unity, and it comes about not because we are able to work out peace and and do these things among ourselves, not because we uh, we have figured out Uh, the secret to abolishing socioeconomic barriers and ethnic barriers and things like that. No, no, no. That's where we live. We love to make distinctions among humanity, right? We will make distinctions about who makes distinctions. We'll point across the aisle and say, we're not like them because they're racist, or we're not like them because they're whatever. We'll make distinctions about the fact that we're not making distinctions. We do it all the time. And the the reality of of, uh, what God is doing through the church is that he's breaking down those barriers that humanity erects, and he's uniting them into one body, Jews and Gentiles in one body, and presenting them together, together, giving them access to the Father. Uh, And there's your your Sunday school homily. Let's pray together, uh, and you'll get a longer sermon later. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, make up for, uh, for any of my and our shortcomings in studying and discussing it today. Uh, Lord, help us to see more of your glory and your goodness. Thank you for life in Christ. Help us to rejoice in what it is that you've done for us, what you've done through him, uh, what you continue to do in your church. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. And by your spirit, we've been enabled to love you and to seek you. We pray that you would help us to do that. Meet us in worship. Give us fellowship with yourself and with one another at your table. Join us together into one body to sing your praises and to come to you. Uh, before the throne of grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.